Welcome to Descriptor, a podcast in which we find out programmers' origin stories. This is episode 19. I don't really own stuff exactly. Just a quick note here at the beginning. In this interview we did with Steve Klabnik, we had a lot of Skype problems and I had to stitch together the episode from various recordings, which makes the audio quality of this episode uh, pretty weird. And also, you will hear, you know, whenever his Skype crapped out and I had to stitch in his recording and stuff like that. So you will definitely hear all that stuff. Just wanted to say that. I hope you will enjoy the episode. Uh, anyway, we had a lot of fun. And in this uh, episode, Henning Glattegertz, who is um, my co-host, he is taking the lead in this uh, interview for the first time. And uh, I think he did a good job. And I hope uh, you'll enjoy it. Thanks. Hi, welcome to Descriptive. I'm Henning and I'm here with my co-host Khalil. Hey. Good. And today's guest is Steve Klabnik. He turns coffee into code and is a prolific open source contributor to projects such as Rails and uh, currently working at Mozilla on Rust. Welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Um, so with, uh, as with all of our guests, we basically try to start at the very beginning and would like to know how you got into programming and uh, how that all evolved. Yeah, so when I talk about this, I actually like to start before the beginning, which is kind of funny. So the interesting thing about my origin story is that I don't usually like to talk about it. And the reason is, is that I am sort of this stereotype and I think that that stereotype is harmful at times. So I always, before I talk about this, I always preface it with, I've met a ton of people who are good programmers that have not started the way that I start. I don't think that the way that I start is like required to be a good programmer. And there are people who start much later in life than me who are wonderful at programming. So disclaimer before the beginning. <laughs> All right. Um, so what happened? Um, I live about half a mile down the road from my grandparents. And my uncle was a computer programmer. Uh, and he decided to bring a computer home to their home to explain what he did because, you know, computers were even newer back then. And uh, I happened to be visiting my grandparents at the time for like the unboxing of this computer. And uh, it was a Mac Plus. Um, and, you know, I was like, what is this? And I was about seven years old uh, at the time. And he was like, this is a computer. Check this out. And he opened up Colossal Cave Adventure. Uh, which is this classic text adventure game. So, you know, so you start off and you say go south and go north and there's like a pirate and a twisty maze of passages all alike and all these kinds of things. And I was completely enthralled immediately. And he said, you know, people have to actually make these kinds of games to make the computer do this. And those people are called programmers. And uh, that was when I knew I wanted to do computers for the rest of my life, basically. Um, my parents used to laugh. They'd, they'd, uh, they'd be like, you don't want to go visit grandma. You just want to go play on grandma's computer. And I would be like, I want to visit grandma and play on grandma's computer um, was my like retort, basically. But uh, that's sort of how it started um, at the, yeah, really, really young. So um, that's what got you, you interested. What, when did you actually start working on it or, or what did you do to start that? Yeah, so uh, because it was so long ago, the timeline was a little fuzzy to me, but shortly, relatively quickly thereafter, I was given uh, one of the computers that's in the back of like a Sears catalog. Um, I don't know if you guys know what that is or that sort of history, uh, but Sears basically like catalog, yes, but I wouldn't know what kind of computer that would be. Yeah, they're just like really terrible toy computers. They're relatively inexpensive, but they had a basic interpreter on them, 
So um, that was like sort of why uh, I ended up getting this particular computer. My whole family chipped in for Christmas to like buy me one. It hooked up to your TV instead of having a monitor. It's like very, very primitive. Um, and so that was like relatively shortly thereafter. Uh, the timeline I do know for sure is that I learned C in seventh grade. That was my second programming language. So I'd been playing a basic uh, as, a as a small child making these games. Um, and then, yeah, about, about the seventh grade, it was like 12-ish years old, I guess, I started playing around with C. Mm -hmm. uh, and these games you made, they were, they were text-based, like the one that you played first? Yeah, they're all super text-based. Have, I've been always bad at graphics and design and things like that. And so one of the things I really enjoyed about the text medium is that I didn't need to be an artist to actually make something that was usable. Right, right. Very cool. And then and what then did you what did dive into dive with C? What did you do there? So pretty much, you know, as you start getting older, there's these questions. Or a lot of kids in the States are faced with their guidance counselors saying, like, what are you going to be doing with your life? What sort of job do you want? And for me, this was always really annoying because they, they're very careful to, like, emphasize you don't know what you want to do yet, and that's perfectly normal. You're growing up and things are changing very rapidly. You may want to do something this year and not next year. And I was like, no, I, I'm going to be a programmer. And they're <laughs> like, that's real nice. But like, you know, stuff's going to change. And like, you know, next year you're going to want to do something else. So I did do these book reports on like five different careers that I would possibly want to like do. And then like narrow them down to three and write a more in-depth follow-up report on those. And I was just like, this is all dumb work. I want to be a programmer. <laughs> um, and so I think for most people, that was like very helpful process for them in school. But for me, I, I like knew that this is what I wanted to do as a job. And so um, what's funny about this thing is like my uncle, while he was very important in like kicking me off into being a programmer, he was never really around in my childhood. Like we weren't close. He didn't teach me or anything. We weren't really there. I basically just occasionally asked him for advice over the years. And so once it started to be like thinking about job prospects, I was like, I need something more serious than this basic stuff on this tiny computer. Uh, what should I do next? And he said, like, you should learn C. Um, and so he picked out a book and, you know, said, here, let me buy you this book for Christmas. And so I got a book on C. And uh, that was sort of how I started. And it pretty much was just complete trial and error. I had, like, the manual for the, the basic computer is also very similar to the C book, where it pretty much tells you, like, here's all the functions you can call. Here's the basic idea. Here's the APIs. But it gives you no guidance on how actually to program a program. So I had no idea, and I didn't have the net. There was no web at that time, uh, or at least I was too poor to have access to it. And so I pretty much just had to like reverse engineer how these games would work. And, and one of my earliest memories, I can really distinctly remember. Uh, I, so I used to, when I made these text adventures, I would sort of draw them out on a map. So I'd, I'd take a two by, well, a two dimensional map, you know, draw a big grid, light, write room numbers in the upper left corners. And, and I remember specifically the time when I realized that if I made my line numbers be multiples of 100, I could make the line numbers match up to the room numbers times 100, and then it would be much easier to figure out what my go-tos would be. Because when I would originally be like, go west, I would manually calculate the line number based on where that was in the code. And when I'd change room one's coding, it would screw up all the line numbers for like the later <laughs> go-tos, and I would have to like figure that out. And so that's my like earliest experience of spaghetti code and like modularity was this idea of like, whoa, because you can skip numbers in the line yeah. numbers. I can do this mapping, and then it's just really easy to go to room 26. You just go to 2600 or whatever. Right. Um, so I had to learn all that stuff basically just by figuring it out and putting in a lot of time. 
Was there a point where you did this in school, or this was obviously all before then, or or not? Yeah, you didn't have well, any formal so training. I I never had any real formal training. By the time, so I, I come from a relatively rural area of the states, and so computers are not really their deal. My father is a farmer, um, and so my high school had two classes that you could take. One is a junior, and one is a senior. And the first one was Visual Basic. Uh, and the second one was like C, very introductory C++. And so I had already been using C in seventh grade and started looking at C++ in eighth grade. So there's like a five-year gap before I was even allowed to take those classes. And we tried wow. to like talk to the administration and be like, is there a way that he can like go to the high school and like take these classes now because like they'd be useful? And they pretty much said like, are you kidding? No. Uh, and so by the time I actually, I never, I, I took the Visual Basic course and I convinced them to let me do it my sophomore year, and then I dropped out uh, because it was so infuriating because the teacher had no idea what she was doing. Um, I, I, got, I got into this argument. It's so funny. I was really a, like a really, really terrible child, if I'm like honest about it. And so when, when she was like, implement the quit button. So in Visual Basic, there's like a quit command that's essentially the same thing as just exit, you know, bail on the program. So you like wire up when you click the quit button, it just calls exit and your program is over. So it's one line, not really complicated. And I lost points on the very first test because I didn't write a comment on that function, the quit button function saying like what it does. And I was like, why do I need a comment for this one line function? And she's like, well, it's important that if people come later, they know what your code does. And I was like, if a programmer doesn't understand a one line call to exit on like button quit dot click, then like they don't deserve to edit my code. And I dropped the class immediately. So, so yeah, I was just, ter I was terrible. Absolutely terrible. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I, so I basically didn't have any formal training until college. And that was the first time that I started to like actually have some sort of influence and like understanding. I did uh, gain access, the local library, um, which I could ride my bicycle to, did get web access. And so I was allowed to go like a couple days a week for an hour or two. And I spent most of that time arguing with people on Slashdot, not really like learning programming. Uh -huh. um, and so I started to interact a little bit earlier than college, but college was the first time I ever had real like formal instruction on programming and like actually knew what was going on. So then you went for a computer science degree in that case, or? Yeah, so I ended up going uh, to, to get a computer science degree. Um, it was just the University of Pittsburgh, because I live in Pittsburgh, and I was exceedingly lazy. I would sort of figured out from talking to people that jobs only really care that you have the credential. They don't really care what your grades are. So I had, I had applied to Carnegie Mellon and the University of Pittsburgh and Penn State. Uh, Carnegie, actually, I didn't even apply to Carnegie Mellon. I wanted to, but it was so expensive. I knew I was never going to be able to afford it. And so I just didn't bother. And I applied to Pitt and Penn State. And it pretty much came down to um, I, had, I had liked going into the city. And Penn State is in the middle of farmland and nowhere in the middle of the state. And so I was, it was like not based on any kind of like educational aspect or like how good their program is. I was just like, I want to live in a city because I'm sick of living on farms. And so I'm going to go to the University of Pittsburgh instead. Um, I see. Yeah. So it was based on geography purely. Yeah. And like I had gone to see shows at this one venue that was on campus and I was like getting excited. I could like go see the punk show every time, you know, all the time. And then of course, three weeks after I accepted uh, to go to that college, that venue shut down, uh, which was also really funny. So like one of the things I wanted to do while I was there just completely gone, you know, oh well.
And then, uh, so you finished college. Did you do any kind of uh, jobs during that? Yeah, that so had to do this, with programming is, this is or? where the history gets exceedingly messy. And oh. I, I like to joke that uh, I've been traveling so much the last couple of years, I have a very tenuous grasp on space and time. So a lot of this kind of gets blurry to me, honestly, even though it's like six years ago. Oh, no. So anyway. So uh, you were at exceedingly messy and then yeah, yeah. there was a sentence or two and then you unfortunately were gone i'll just i'll just back up slightly so yep. okay so college and like exiting college i i like to joke that i've been traveling for a couple years now and so i have a very tenuous grasp on time and space and so a lot of this history even though it was only five or six years ago is very jumbled for me i i, I don't remember the years very well specifically but i basically ended up taking six years to finish college and the reason that this was happened was because I dropped out and I did a startup. Um, so a friend, a, fr a friend of mine had introduced me to a friend of his. He was a business guy in the business school. And this business guy was very ambitious. And um, he had decided that he wanted to start a company because he's a business guy. And Pittsburgh had just been starting a new like incubator, a Y Combinator style program to um, make these sort of things happen. And so... Uh, he like came to me and basically said, hey, Steve, I have my company accepted to start off in this incubator with like $25,000 of funding, but I can't program. I need a programmer. Like, what do you say about starting this company with me? And I, I remember the first thing that I felt was just, I felt very stupid. And the reason I felt very stupid was that I had been, as I mentioned before, arguing with people on Slashshot for years and I knew that like starting tech companies was a thing and that like startups was a thing. But because it was a California thing and I was from the East Coast, it never really occurred to me that that was a path that I could take. I, I always assumed that I would be like growing up and working at some big company. So in, in Pittsburgh, medical stuff is very big. So I just kind of assumed that I would go work as a programmer for UPMC and you know, have a cubicle and work nine to five and like do that and, and whatever. And it just, that, that whole universe of startups had been a thing that I didn't realize I could even do. Um, and so I found that that would be a much, much better, a very attractive idea to not have a cubicle and have that kind of boring desk job. Um, and so I decided to say, okay. And um, there's a number of things that are, that are interesting about that too, I guess. So the first one is I had taken very seriously this idea that it didn't matter what grades I got in college. And so I'd started working on open source stuff a little bit um, already. Um, and so I'd been, I'd been doing open source and just like contributing a couple little things. And I was doing that instead of my homework. <laughs> so I was getting like very poor grades. And it's, it's funny because my professors were like, are you trying to get a C? And I was like, basically, yes. Like I had mathed out, like I've done enough work that if I get a 50% on the final, I'll pass this class. So whatever, I'm not studying it. I'm going to go read more about Git or whatever. Um, and, and so I ended up graduating with a 2.01 GPA. Wow. Because like, I did it exactly. Uh, and there's one or two of my classmates who were, let, let's say, very, very grade oriented. And like we, our interactions drove them crazy because they, they were always like, our class, we have that homework. It's due in an hour. Did you finish it yet? Can we like compare notes? Like, I'm curious to see how you solved, you know, this particular problem. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, that class is an hour. Right, right. I didn't actually do that. And I'd just be like sitting on the computer in the lab, like screwing around with whatever. And, and they'd be like, but don't, but aren't you, 
you need to you need to get that done like what you're gonna miss points and I was like yeah but it's not really a big deal like I'll, I'll work on it a little bit but I'm like I'm in the middle of the splash game I don't really want to do work right now I'll just I'll just wait and so that was like really really funny and that was that was a lot of my college was hanging out in a computer lab uh, either working on open source or helping people with their homework problems and not really doing any of my own homework. Like a lot of the times I would get stuff done just because like someone would come in with a question and I would start helping them. And then they're like, aren't you in my class? And I'd be like, oh yeah. And they're like, this is the answer. This is like homework problem number five. And I'd be like, <laughs> cool. And I would just write it down. But I was much more interested in helping them than I was in doing it when it was for my own grade. Um, and I also had dropped off to this startup. I'd actually had an internship concurrent with my schooling. So a friend of mine who had graduated a year before me had gotten a real job uh, at a company. And so he had gotten me an internship at that company. He basically like told his bosses like, hey, this Steve guy is like the best programmer that I know. And he's making pizza right now. So you should really like hire him because that, that was my job all through high school and college is working at a pizza shop. Um, <laughs> and, and so I ended up taking a job at this internship. And it was, it was really interesting because um, it, is, it was a startup that had been acquired already. So they were kind of an autonomous team within this broader big company. And so it felt like working for an eight-person company, but it was really more like a 50-person company. But they kind of just like left the startup alone to do its stuff. Um, so this company is called Libsyn. They do podcast hosting, actually. Oh, uh, I know that. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> So, like, I did Libsyn V2, basically. That was, like, my job or, like, what I worked on, which is a long time ago now. Um, but I worked at that internship for about a year. And it's funny because for a number of reasons. So, so they were a podcasting startup that got bought by a media company. So the media company was like, we don't really know what's up with this. This is just a way to get more advertising. So we'll let all you nerds do your nerd stuff. And, like, as long as you give us the ability to shove ads and things, like, we're cool. Um, and so we sort of operated as this autonomous unit, which meant that it felt, it felt like a small job, even though it was for, actually for a larger company. Um, and uh, the other big thing that was interesting about it was when I started, we were just kicking off the big rewrite. So uh, there was a ton of really terrible PHP code, and it was like not handling the load uh, that we needed, and we wanted to refresh the interfaces. And basically just like the decision was made to put the current product on life support and rewrite a totally brand new version. And so that ended up taking about a year and they launched it like a week after I quit the job, which is kind of funny. I never even actually got to see all my work go into production and do all that stuff. Was that um, in Rails then at that time? So no, that was entirely a PHP job okay. actually. And uh, that's, that's an interesting question too because, well, I'll get to that Rails thing in a moment. I have one more fun story from the, the uh, internship job. Um, so NPR hosts all their podcasts on Libsyn, or at least they did at the time. And uh, I was given this task of like, hey, Steve, you're the intern. We need to back up all of the really old media files and move them onto our backup server. Uh, you should write a little Perl script or whatever that will um, make that happen. Uh, so just but tell us before you run it. And we, we want to sign off on this code before you do that thing. And so I was like, I don't even need a Perl script. Here's a one-liner find command that like, calls out to MV or whatever and XARGs and like does all this stuff. And uh, my, my boss signed off on it. So I ran the commands and uh, everything looked good. So we celebrated, like cool, job well done. You know, that's, that's done. About 20 minutes later, NPR called us. And the thing that I forgot to take into account was that we were only archiving the old MP3 files 
all the like images and stuff that was actually used on the page was also very old, like old enough to be archived. But we didn't want to remove those from the server. So pretty much like I just deleted all of the images off of NPR's blog, oh, like geez. blogs and stuff. Um, and <laughs> Nice. Luckily, I will say that, uh, yeah, I panicked for like a couple minutes and then they were like, Steve, you're the intern. Of course, we backed up everything before we told you to run an RM command like across the server or whatever. And I was <laughs> like, oh, thank God. So it was OK. Like we had the backups and I didn't like irre irrevocably screw it up. Um, but that was just, you know, like they're like, congratulations, you broke production. You actually work here now for real. <laughs> uh, like rite of passage. Um, so, awesome. yeah, so I had. At the time that, so I've been working at this internship, and that's when this friend approached me about doing the startup. And I had been, about a month before he showed up or, or whatever, a little bit of time, I had started seeing stories about Ruby on Rails pop up in the various discussion forums on the net that I was you know, reading at the time. And so I, I saw this blog post called Unit Testing in Ruby on Rails. And I was like, unit testing, what's that? And then it's like, you write these tests, and it checks your code works. And I was like, code that tests your code, oh my god, this is amazing. Because one of the problems that we had at that internship was that we had literally deploy week where we would like push to production on Monday and then just sort out all the rest of the terrible bugs that would happen the rest of the week. Yep, because like there's, yeah, there's just like no infrastructure whatsoever to test things. And this is like a really big problem and a big pain point. Like no one wanted to change stuff because they were afraid of breaking everything. And you know, like you changed it, therefore you have to fix it when it breaks and all those kind of things. And so when I found out you could like do this unit testing thing, I was like, guys, this is super cool. And so I dug into like the PHP unit testing framework stuff, and it was not quite as far along as Rails. And as I would later learn, you know, if you don't start off with TDD, like building, take adding TDD into a component that already exists is a nightmare because you just don't have the kind of like setup stuff, and you know your dependencies are all terrible, and like everything's a giant mess. Um, and so I was not very successful at introducing actual unit tests. And, you know, the people I worked with were like, I see the value of this in the abstract, but I don't, I feel like, you know, all the standard conversations, right? You're like, is this going to slow me down? Because now I'm writing these tests instead of this code. Um, and the other thing was that we had a, we had a, 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 a database master uh, person who was in control of a DBA, who was in control of all the database stuff. And he was very strict that ORMs were stupid and terrible and no one should use them. So if you need a new model class, here's the like PHP template that you can just copy over and change the name of all the tables and stuff to like the name of the class. And what I would later learn is that pretty much he had just like implemented the active record pattern, but <laughs> instead of it being an ORM, it was just like SQL literally copy and pasted into every single class file. Nice. Um, and so I was learning this Rails stuff and I was like, this Rails thing is really cool. There's this like testing stuff and this like ORM that just like, does all the SQL for you and like this is all amazing and cool you know what do you think about using some Rails stuff and they pretty much were like we don't care and that was the time my friend approached me and so I had told him like conditionally on accepting this job I was like okay but you know I'm gonna write this thing in Ruby on Rails is that okay and he was like I don't care you're the programmer you know what's best um, and so I started saw this opportunity is like not only to build my own thing but also to use Ruby and Rails which I thought were super neat um, and I was excited about them so uh, so yeah, so I ended up like doing this startup, quitting my internship, dropping out of college with one semester left, uh, and, uh, you know, doing it cause there wasn't really time. Like we needed to start this company to fit into the next batch of companies in the incubator. And that was the only way we get our funding. So I didn't really have time to be like, let's, you know, Hey, put your life plans on hold for six months. Like he basically was like, I'll find another programmer if that's true. 
So I saw this as an opportunity I needed to sort of seize immediately. Um, and also I liked being a college dropout. Uh, you know, it's like all the great programmers yeah, are college yeah. dropouts. And so I, I, I played into that very heavily. Uh, and now that I actually did finally go back and get the degree, I like to joke that I'm a, a college dropout dropouts. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not actually a dropout anymore. Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's a little further along in the story, I guess. Um, so yeah, so that was, that was sort of like the end of the first chunk of college um, was, yeah, doing all that stuff and, uh, you know, getting my internship and then leaving to do this startup. Wow. And um, so how, how did that go then? Did, uh, did that go anywhere, the, the, the actual startup? or? Yeah. So there's a number of interesting things about this. And I, I think I, I also, I, when I tell this story, I like to tell it honestly. But that also means that uh, I like to preface it by saying that neither of us knew what we were doing whatsoever. So... Uh, there were some things that happened over the course of that startup that were kind of like not great, but I don't think that they're because like my co-founder was a bad person or anything. We just literally had no idea what we were doing. So it comes time to start the actual company and he was like, okay, so I, I know this business. I'll, I'll talk about what it actually did in a moment, but he's like, I know this business. I have all the contacts. I know what this needs to do. I have literally everything. I just needed to be coded up. So how about like I get 90% of the stock and you get 10% of the stock? And I was like, okay, seems, seems fair. And like later we would both joke about this. He was like, yeah, that's a terrible thing to do to someone. And I was just like, yeah, that was a terrible thing I never should have accepted in the first place. But, you know, we were kids and young and dumb and didn't do this before and had no idea how that stuff goes. Um, so that was like the first mistake, I guess, was just not going for equal equity um, in the first place or something more equal than that. Mm -hmm. um, because later that would cause me a lot of resentments. Um, but so what the company actually did, we were called CloudFab. Um, the idea was 3D printing in the cloud. So uh, just like you use EC2 to rent out servers, you could use our service to uh, rent out 3D printers. So instead of it being like run my web app on the cloud, it would be print my job in the cloud. Um, and so that was like really, really cool. The problem is, is that in 2009, 3D printing was even less known than it's known now. And so we pretty much, like, we, we went through the incubator. We ended up getting a follow-on round of angel investments. Um, over the course of about two years, we burned through all that money, and there just wasn't enough actual business to sustain a company doing that, especially not one that's trying to go the investment route. Like, if it had been, like, a passion project and bootstrapped, then, like, maybe it would have worked out. I just still don't think so. I don't think there's enough business to actually do those kind of things. But um, that was ultimately why that company ended up failing. Was just there was just not a business at that time. Um, I've heard that Y Combinator has funded a similar company relatively recently. I think uh, so. Maybe maybe they will do better than we did. You know, a couple of years later. That's interesting. Uh, I, I would think that for, for mechanical engineering companies and specifically, that would be awesome for prototyping. I mean, I yeah. remember when I worked doing that. We we spoke of that often. And wish right. we could, you know, afford it, or if there was, you know, such an opportunity. So that's that's interesting. So what we found out at the time was, you you sort of said it right there. If we could afford it, we would love to use it. Ah, so okay. the, people, the people who couldn't, who wanted to do it, couldn't afford it, and the people that could afford it had a guy. You know, ah. they like got their three D printing guy. So it's like, what you're going to make me like sever tie? I've been working with this guy for twenty years now. He does all my printing. Why am I going to throw him away to use this? Like, you know weird new website thing. Um, 
So that was the problem was that like there is a lot of 3D printing being done, but we couldn't make any inroads because it's like too personal of a business, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why, why would you sever your connection? With you? And we tried to get those guys to be on the platform and move their orders to be on us, you know, like, hey, you can have jobs for multiple people and whatever. But the, the printer people were not happy about the idea of possibly being commoditized to a degree. And the seller, the buyer people were not happy with like suggesting to their long business partner that they didn't need them anymore. So we just couldn't make inroads into that market. Um, and the people who don't have a guy couldn't afford it. Interesting. Okay. Makes sense, I guess, though. Yeah. Like if you do that kind of volume, you can afford it and you maybe even buy your own printer. Right. Um, like what are you going to do? Yeah. Um, we also tried to do it based on like we have access to 16 different kinds of 3D printing and your guy probably only has one or two or three maybe. And that also didn't really like resonate with people. They kind of just wanted to do what they have always done. So, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. What are you going to do? Yeah. So that then basically went under. Yeah, eventually, just sort of due to running out of money, um, mm-hmm. I I kind of like, it, so if when I saw the business wasn't going anywhere, and I had become increasingly upset because you know, again, it wasn't Nick's fault that there weren't any people to sell to, but I was like, I'm doing all the programming work and I'm shipping stuff and getting it done, and your half of the business is selling stuff and you're not actually selling stuff, mm-hmm. and I only have ten percent of the equity. So this feels really unfair. Um, and this also was the time period in which I started to learn what anti-capitalism was. And so that also had like started to color these kinds of like decisions or I was like, I'm much more aware of these, this kind of situation and like how this all works. Uh, and so that also was a little bit part of it too is I started to feel like, you know, I am the worker. I'm doing all the work and I don't get any equity. Like, what is going on? But by that time, like, by that time, the business had, uh, you know, again, Nick and I were friends. Like, I don't think he was screwing me over on purpose. Um, it's just like, by the time that that became apparent that that was a thing I wanted, there was no business. And so I just decided to leave rather than try to, like, you know, we had a discussion that was like, well, if you want more equity, we could give you more equity. And I was like, more equity of nothing. It doesn't make any sense. So, like, right. it's fine. Uh, yeah. And he and I are still great friends to this day. And like when I go to San Francisco, I, I catch up with him and say hi. And like, you know, uh, like other than the business failing, like everything else went well. <laughs> that's good. No, that's good. I was going to ask that if you still speak to him. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So uh, is that the time then you went back to college or did you go some yeah. other avenue? So what happened was um, I, uh, yeah. So being a nerd and being a little good libertarian nerd dude, I, uh, I pretty much dress in all black all the time because I'm lazy. And it's very easy when you're a nerd to just dress in all black all the time. And uh, in 2009, I think it was, the G20 summit came to Pittsburgh. And I had heard that the G20 was some big, important economic thing, but I didn't really know anything about it. And I heard there was going to be, like, protests and stuff. And, you know, I thought that was kind of interesting. So I decided to, like, mosey on down to my local G20 resistance um, and I'd also known, I guess part of the story too, is that my friends at Libsyn, um, had actually known that there was going to be protests against the G20 stuff because they're, you know, like old lefty type people. And so they had actually been building a little app to, uh, collect up all the social media around the G20 resistance. And so I actually helped my former coworkers build this little thing called Crows that would aggregate like Flickr and YouTube videos and Libsyn feeds and uh, tweets and stuff and like put them on a Google map maps. You could see like what was happening and when. 
And um, that was all through the indie media uh, organization that we sort of partnered with to make this thing happen. And so the New York Times ended up calling it the best place to find on the ground reporting uh, about the G20, which I thought was really cool. And I yeah. was excited. So I was like aware that like stuff was going on, but I didn't really like get it exactly. I didn't know what the G20 did or like why people really cared. But I was like, this is cool. I'm I'm happy to like you know help out with this like social media thing and like citizen reporting. I was like really big into that at that time period of like you know the news does not necessarily give us the full story. Like we as citizens need to you know help report the news that matters to us and like you know all that kind of stuff. Um, so now that I had this thing that was recording all my tweets and stuff. Uh, I decided to go down and, and, you know, visit the actual protests. And it's so funny looking back, I feel so stupid because like, I didn't know the black block was a thing. And I don't know how much you guys know about all this stuff. Um, I do not know what black block is. Nothing. Okay. So the black block are basically the anarchists who show up to like, uh, I, the crude way of putting it is like fight the cops. But uh, you, you can make a more, there's a more important distinction. And like, this is not a show about protest tactics, so I won't really get into <laughs> it. But the point is to segment off the people who are willing to put their bodies in harm's way to protect the rest of the march. So like if the police try to block off the parade routes, the black block are the people up front with banners, like pushing into the police lines to give the rest of the people move. And you also know that if like, you're not interested in that kind of confrontation, that you should get away from the people who are dressed in all black. Um, uh -huh. And so it's like, it's like that kind of like tactical support is what they actually are for. Um, they got a lot of wild war. Uh, it actually started in Germany. Um, it's the first time this sort of tactic appeared in protests, but it got really popular in 99 uh, during the WTO riots in Seattle, where a bunch of windows got broken by a bunch of like black bloc anarchists. Um, and so that was the time that that like sort of rose to prominence as a thing. But I had no idea of that, of that like kind of thing at all whatsoever, but I showed up dressed exactly like all of them. And I was, and I was nice. like, what's going on here? And so, like, what's, what else is funny is that, like, then they all assumed I was part of their group because, like, again, what kind of idiot shows up to a protest dressed up like <laughs> that if they don't mean it? Um, and so it, I, we started our march, you know, and, and, and in this case, there was two marches. There was, a, there was a planned march that was legal and there was an illegal march. And I was like, I am, believe in freedom of speech and I believe in the Constitution and the idea that you have to get a permit to protest is like an affront to our constitutional liberties. So like, I'm going to support the illegal march because like, it's dumb that that's illegal. Uh, and so then I find myself in a crowd of people like holding like down with capitalism signs and I was like, this is kind of dumb. What do you mean down with capitalism? That's not really even a thing. Uh, but whatever, like we're getting tear gassed and shot with rubber bullets and like all this other stuff anyway. So um, I watched a bunch of my friends get arrested and like all this other shenanigans that happened. Um, the reason the story is relevant is because during that time period, I was hooking up with all the other people on Twitter who were talking about all this stuff. And one of them was an English professor at Pitt who uh, was one of my friends was taking her class. And so we ended up like becoming friends, me and this professor. And when I quit my company, I was like, I don't really know what I want to do with myself in the future. And I had remembered how much fun I had had helping my peers work on their homework uh, at you know this college. And so I thought maybe like teaching would be something I would be interested in doing. And I had just befriended this teacher, um, you know, six months before. And so I had you know pinged her and said basically like, hey, can we get some coffee sometime? And uh, I asked her, like, you know, okay, you're a college professor. You know, I'm thinking about maybe getting into teaching. I just got off of doing this, like, startup company, and, you know, I don't really know what I want to do with myself. And um, she was like, well, I think that would be really cool. You should also know that the English department is very interested in programmers right now. 
And so it, since you're like interested in this writing stuff and teaching stuff, like maybe you actually want to think about getting an English degree uh, to do your teaching with, or like maybe you want to teach humanities students how to code or like be involved in all this stuff. Um, and so that was very appealing to me. But I, in order to do that, I had to go to grad school. In order to go to grad school, you have to finish undergrad. <laughs> so I ended up going back and taking that last final semester um, and uh, finishing off school. Now, the funny part about this is that uh, one of the reasons it took me so long to finish college was, again, because I was terrible at like doing homework and stuff. And computer science requires you at that university to complete a statistics, a calculus-based statistics course. And the problem with those kinds of classes is that they're basically almost entirely predicated on how much homework you do. So I would get like B pluses on my final but fail the class because I hadn't done any homework and that knocks 40% off your grade. Um, and so I had failed this statistics course like three times over the course of my undergraduate. And it was like the last class I needed to actually get my degree. And um, because I'm a moron, I like almost failed it. Um, <laughs> Even though I like knew I wanted to do this stuff and it was like finishing off my degree and like all these things, um, because it turns out that you need a C to pass it to, for it to count because it's a degree requirement, and I got a C minus. Um, so I I, I got, went to the professor and I was and the professor was like, I don't ever give people extra points. Like we covered this at the beginning of the class, and I was like, here's the thing, I know that this is true, but. I need to get into grad school, and if I fail this class, I'm out, and this is like my career plan, and I'm going to, I'm going to school in English, so you know I'm never going to use those statistics anyway, so you're not like harming me by putting me into a class <laughs> that I can't pass. Like, I'm just literally never going to do this in my life ever again. So, like, you know, you are, like, I'm at your mercy, like, you know, please just give me a couple points to bump it up to a C, and then I can pass, and then I can go to grad school, and like, I can just leave all this stuff behind me. And he said... Okay, I, I buy that line of reasoning, and I'm willing to do this, but if you're going to be an English degree person, you should write a 20-page paper for me on why you should do your statistics homework. And <laughs> so I did. Uh, I wrote that paper, and he said he was going to pass it out to all of his students. He was like, I'm surprised you actually did it. And I was like, no, I really care about this. And he's like, how did you fill up 20 pages on that topic? And I was like, I'm going to be an English major. Uh, that's like what we do. <laughs> and he was like, touche. Uh, so uh, my favorite part about that is I, I pretty much wrote, the paper was basically like, this is why statistics is relevant to you no matter what you do. So I was like, as a programmer, you use statistics to like track how good your programs are and if your performance is regressed or not. And I cited uh, Zed Shaw had this really great blog post called like, uh, every programmer needs to learn statistics or I'm going to effing kill them all. Or something, and I like cited that in the paper because I thought it was really funny to like slip in a curse word in my citations. Um, but I was like, "This is a great example of why statistics matters to you as a programmer." And like, if you go into biology, use statistics like this, and if you're like in a doctor, use statistics like this, and just like you know, filled it out or whatever. Um, so I got my extra couple points. I got my C minus. I passed college, and I was all set to go to grad school when. Uh, as the reason that I'm not in academia today is because academia is full of weird nepotism and fiefdoms and people arguing over their little chunk of things. And so um, my, all of the old guard in the English department were not psyched about the fact that my advisor's classes were filling up and they're filling up on these new computery things and not the like classic sort of 
English literature sort of like deals. So they pretty much decided that even though their classes were filling up, they didn't want it anymore. And so because I was her student or going to be her student, I sort of got screwed in the process. And they, well, the way they did it was they pretty much said like, oh, we're sorry. When we told you that this would be free, we didn't know that you got a 2.0 GPA. Uh, you needed at least a 3.0 to get funding. So you're going to have to pay for this English degree. And I was like, I love this, but I am not paying for an English degree. <laughs> um, I was already $72,000 in debt from undergrad. Uh, and like idea of piling on to that more and for a degree that I was doing basically because I wanted to do it, not because it would actually offer me any real job prospects or like increased income in the future, just seemed like a terrible financial decision. So I ended up um, not doing that. Um, and so, so that was sort of the like, oh, well, I guess I won't teach at universities then. Um, that's kind of a bummer. But what was important about it was that I like did all the required reading for someone who's going to be going to grad school in the fall. So I like knew that I had no background in English stuff and there was a ton of books I needed to read to like not look like an idiot in front of my peers. And so I ended up reading a lot of books that were like very influential to me later in life and I still have them on my bookshelf right over here, which you cannot see, of course, but like, you know, they're still very near and dear to me and like I'm glad that that time period happened because it definitely like shaped my future in many ways, even if I didn't actually go to the schooling. Very interesting. Wow. And, uh, well, I guess, yeah, how, how did this, this continue then? What, what happened? Yeah. So I was like, okay, uh, I know that startups are kind of dumb. And I don't want to do another startup. And, uh, you know, maybe they're saying they're dumb is a bit strong, but I was like, <laughs> I'm not getting back into this. I was like, I need to start paying down my student loans because, like, one of the things I was doing was taking out basically no money. Pittsburgh is a very, very inexpensive city, and especially back then. Uh, and so I was basically able to, like, defer my loans because I was technically like living below the poverty line. Um, and so like, I was like, I need to start paying off this debt. So I should actually get a job and not do another company because I don't want to have to like work for free for a couple more years, uh, because I just literally can't afford to do that. Um, and so I ended up doing some freelancing work and, um, just generally like contributing. So I still loved Ruby and Rails. And I was still working on stuff and I started contributing to open source things and I started just doing generic consulting. So people would like, you know, call me up and give me some money and I would build their app or like whatever and, and just did that for a while. Um, and it was at that point that uh, Why the Lucky Stiff quit Ruby. Um, I don't know what your guys' Ruby background is or what, you know, your audience's Ruby background is. Um, but there was this person, his name is Y, W-H-Y. Um, I, I have yeah. heard of that, but I don't know the specifics of it. Yeah. Yeah. So no, he, I, I know about his poignant guide to Ruby. But right. That's, that's about it. So he got really famous for this poignant guide to Ruby. And he was extremely interested in blending art and code together. Like he, he was an artist whose medium was programming, not really like a programmer exactly. And so he had been working on all this stuff that was like very important. And um, one of the things that he was interested in was teaching. Um, and so he'd worked on this project called Hack the Hack, which is sort of like an IDE with a built-in tutorial for teaching you how to program um, and doing that with Ruby. Um, and he was just generally a very like weird oddball guy uh, who was really into absurdism. And, and like the pointed guide to Ruby is a weird title, of course, at first, but then it's like got a bunch of cartoon foxes in it and all this stuff about chunky bacon and all these things. And so, um, he ended up uh, mysteriously disappearing from the web in August of 2009, I believe it was. Um, and uh, just one day we woke up and all of this stuff was gone. 
And this was a super bummer for me, especially because he had just been in Pittsburgh presenting uh, a couple months before at this thing called Art and Code. And I was out of town that weekend. And so I was really excited to go see him present. But I was like, oh, well, I'll see why next time he's around. And then he disappeared before I even ever got to talk to him. Um, Hmm. And so the Ruby community collectively was like, this is really sad. I hope that he's okay. Uh, I don't really know what's going on. But we, because Git is distributed, we had backups of all of his stuff. So we started to assemble, like, who is going to take over maintainership of X? Who is going to take over maintainership of Y? Uh, which, uh, oh, yeah, that's not wrong, Y. Uh, the letter. <laughs> um, and so I was like, I haven't really done a whole lot of this open source stuff. I'm definitely not ready to be a maintainer of a project. I could, like, write some patches. But um, I think Hackity Hack is a very important project, and I would be sad to see it die. So I'm going to help whoever the maintainer is. And then the person who was sort of doling out these roles was like, cool, you're the new maintainer. And I was like, that's not what I said. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah. And then the other thing that sort of happened was like, no one else showed up. So it was just me. You were it. And, and I, I was it. And so what's really funny is that, um, I had just gotten a new MacBook, um, and, it was Snow Leopard, which was the first release that removed the old uh, um, Carbon APIs from Mac OS 9. And so I actually couldn't even get it to compile uh, on my new computer mm. um, because it hadn't been ported from Carbon to Cocoa. Mm-hmm. So I had this giant project, which is an IDE plus Ruby interpreter plus custom extensions plus C extensions written by some guy who was not particularly concerned with maintainability. Uh, who, you know, had disappeared off the face of the planet and there was no one else to help. And I kind of said, like, okay, I care enough about this that I'm going to just heads down and whatever, I'm going to do it. And so it took me about six months to get it to compile. Uh, and finally, I did get it to compile because I ported it over to Coco. I got a little, couple things going. And I just pretty much, like, there was a website component that was not open source, so it was totally lost. So I had to re-engineer the site API out of the code for this, like, client. Um, and build the site to work with, you know, or, or update this calls to like, you know, make that stuff happen. Cause you could like have an account and it would keep track of how, lo- how many le- lessons you'd completed. And like, you could do that. Like there's a, fo- there was a forum originally where you could like talk with other people who were using this thing. Um, and so I kind of had to recreate all that stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a lot of work and it was very lonely and there were some people that helped me, but they were very intermittent um, and you know, just like, it was pretty much just me doing this thing. But was and that so, full time six months or were you doing this on the side of your contracting work? I was doing work? this on the side. It was okay. all on the side of my contracting. Yeah. Um, because there was no money in that at all. Right. And so, you know, I had to pay rents and stuff. So, yeah. um, that was one of the reasons why it took six months is cause it was just, a, you know, how, how much can you get frustrated with working with make after work, right? <laughs> like put it in an hour or two and you're like, I, I just know I'm going to do literally anything else with my life than dealing with this make file right now. Did you teach yourself Coco in that time or did you know? Uh... I, I had known a little bit of it because I was like a lifelong Mac guy. So like I bought Mac OS 10.0 when it came out. Mm-hmm. I was like really into it and all that stuff. So I was very aware that the APIs existed. And honestly, most of it had been ported to Coco already. There was only a little bit that needed to be moved, but I didn't know that at the time. Okay. Um, and so there was just like, that part of it was just like, you know, Ruby uses a lot of metaprogramming. And so there was like a 
1,000 line long metaprogrammed makefile that I just had to figure out how it was even building stuff before. The actual diff of the porting was not that hard and not that big of a deal. It was the like figuring out the build system and getting it to run on my computer and like there's a lot of details that you know weren't exactly like good for running on a brand new computer. There was like a implicit stuff I had to like figure out, but you know build systems are terrible and hard. Yeah. Um, and so that was just like a lot of the grunt work was just like deraveling what all this stuff did. Um, and because it was Mac Windows Linux, there was also like, you know, okay, this stuff is related to Windows and like, you know, how do I do that even? Just all this other stuff like that. Um, so, uh, so I've been working on that and uh, I was, you know, ready to ship a version of it to like say you could actually use this now. And um, one of my friends was like, you should submit a talk to RubyConf about this because like everyone loved Y and they know his stuff disappeared and some people are maintaining it. You know, that would be a good conference talk. And I was like, really? Like, I don't even really know, like, what's a conference? Like, how do these things work? And, like, I'm really going to present at, like, the big important Ruby conference? Like, I'm just some dude who writes some Ruby sometimes. Like, it's not a big deal. And he was like, no, seriously, they'll love it. So I, I wrote up a, for the CFP. It just opened. So I, I wrote up a proposal and I submitted it. And I, like, tweeted about it. Like, you know, oh, I'm, I'm going to do a talk on my work on saving Hackity Hack. And... Two other conference organizers saw that and were like, wait, you're going to give a talk at RubyConf? Do you want to give, come give a talk about that at my conference? That would be awesome. So <laughs> I was like, okay, uh, I, I don't know. And I had attended GitHub's first conference, their CodeConf, a long time ago. That was like the first conference I'd went to. So I, it's sort of like preparation for like, what is this like even? Mm -hmm. um, so then I was like, oh, crap. Now I have to figure out how to pay for these trips for these like three conferences I'm going to. And, uh, but this is also kind of cool and I like this, so maybe I'll put in more. Um, so I like submitted to a couple other conferences and then they all came back. Yes. And I was like, oh crap. Like now, now I'm supposed to give like 10 conference talks and like, I don't know, I've never done this. I just, I this was forced upon me. Like I didn't even want to do it. I'm not really even a good maintainer. Like, look, I haven't even made that much progress in these like six months or whatever. Like, uh, I have no idea what's going on. Um, but over the course of going to those conferences, I managed to scrape together, like, you know, riding the bus to some of them and, like, crashing on people's couches. And, like, I made it work. Um, I met this guy who uh, was also going to lots of conferences at the time. And uh, he was running a training company teaching people Ruby and Rails. And so we were at the bar drinking at one of these conferences. And he was like, man, it really sucks because, like, I have kids and I'd like to see them but I have just enough work that it's too much for just me, but not really enough to hire another person full time. And I was like, I would love to get into teaching. That's like what I wanted to do with this English degree I never got. So, and I'm doing freelance work right now. So maybe I could just like work with you part time as a client doing teaching. And he was like, that'd be awesome. And so that's how I found my next job, which took up the next couple of years of my life, um, working for a company called Jumpstart Labs. Um, and so me and Jeff taught a bunch of people Ruby and we basically worked out a deal where he's like, what are you looking for a career? Like, what's, what's your actual objectives? And I was like, well, I want to teach people. I want to work on open source. I want to travel because I'd never really gone anywhere in my life. Again, I'm from a really small town in the middle of nowhere. So I'd never really seen the broader world. Like, at this point, I was living in Pittsburgh still, you know, half an hour's drive away from where I grew up. Like, I just hadn't really done any travel, really. Um, and so I was like, open source, travel the world, speak at conferences, teach people. And he was like, okay, so I think we, got, we can make this work. And so basically he was like, if you go and speak at conferences, that can be our advertising. 
and I can stay home with my kids more often, and then we can teach a class, you know, whenever we like get work or whatever. Um, and so that was sort of what I did. I put it submitted to all these conferences. They basically all said yes uh, because it was marketing expense. Jumpstart paid for all those trips, um, and I like went out and you know spread the good word of Ruby and stuff. Um, basically, <laughs> how uh, was that original your first conference talk? How was that received, or how did that go? It went really well, uh, and uh, it's it's actually like Lone Star Ruby. Like you can look it up. Probably it's probably still online. And um, I had in high school, I had been doing this project called the Pennsylvania Junior Academy of Science. And what it meant was you did a science experiment and you presented it to college professors, and they graded you on how good you did. And luckily, computer science was a science, so you could actually do like code as your experiment or whatever. So I had already been used to presenting to college professors in high school, and so that had like beaten all of the stage fright stuff out of me at a fairly young age. So I was totally comfortable with getting up on stage and speaking, um, and so I just like kind of just did it, and people seemed to like it. Um, cool. So you were well prepared. Yeah, uh, it's sort of just naturally, and you know when you're teaching, you're speaking in front of people too, right? So you can't yeah. like teach a class of twenty people if you have stage fright. Um, right. And so doing that on a regular basis also helped me like not care at all, basically, about the, the public speaking aspects of speaking. Um, but because we taught on site, um, when I wasn't traveling to do these conferences, I was traveling to give uh, actual classes. And so I was on the road like a lot, a lot, like four days a month at home, a lot, a lot. Um, and so I went from like I've never traveled in my life to like going all over the place in a very short period of time. Um, and so I, I like to say I'm like the Bruce Banner of jet lag. Like the secret <laughs> is I'm always jet lagged. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Even yeah. when I say I'm like taking the year off, I still end up traveling a whole bunch. Um, like it's just the way that it goes. Last year I took the year off and I only traveled like 80,000 miles that year. Um, which is like ridiculous. Wow. Yeah, but that that wears on you. I mean, how how did you how do you get through yeah. that? I mean, this is why I make jokes about having a tenuous grasp on time and space. Yeah. It's just that like I sort of adapted to always be changing and always being in different places, and like you just sort of like get into this groove where it's like another airport, another hotel, another mm -hmm. group of people. Some of them are familiar faces. Some of them are brand new. You're like constantly making new friends, saying hello, and then saying goodbye at the same time. You know, like I now have all these friends scattered across the world that I get to see every once in a while, um, and it's like very, it's very strange and like uh, it's it's the very like disassociative in ways. Um, like I don't really own stuff exactly. The last time I moved, I moved entirely by myself in six hours. Wow. Like, uh, <laughs> Nice. And I moved from one part of New York to the other part of New York. But I basically just, like, grabbed boxes of stuff and went on the subway. And it was, like, five or six trips, and I was done. Um, That's awesome. And so, yeah, like, I have, on multiple occasions, I have realized that I forgot what time I was supposed to be leaving on an international trip and packed and went to the airport within, like, 45 minutes of, like, going. You know, I was like, oh, wait, that flight's at 10 p.m., not midnight? Crap, I need to go. Throw mm -hmm. my stuff in a bag and just leave. Um this also leads to weird things that like borders. So, you know, I travel so much that I forget sometimes where I'm going or the details. So, uh, for example, I was at a conference in Israel and, uh, I, the organizers had paid for a cab to pick me up, to take me to the hotel. So I was like, cool, don't need to remember the hotel information. Hotel's going to have Wi-Fi, So I don't need to remember the information where the conference actually is. Uh, you know, I just like land, go through customs, get in this, get in this taxi. I'm like, I'm good. 
Um, and then I go through customs and they're like, so why are you here? I'm at a conference. Oh, where's the conference at? Uh, <laughs> downtown. Where are you staying? I have this Airbnb that like there's a cab waiting to take me there, but I don't remember the address because the cab has it. And they're like, yeah, you need to come to us in this like you know, <laughs> interrogation room. And so that's like the kind of thing, you know, and then there's Wi-Fi and I pulled open the computer and I was like, here's all my info. And they're like, okay, cool. No, no worries. But like, there's like that thing when you travel a lot, you like get into these kind of rhythms and habits. Like I'm just so used to being on planes and going places that like, I will actually forget specifically where I'm going a lot of the time. Like I recently went to South Carolina and when the TSA agent was like, where are you going? I was like, Carolina. Uh, Cause I couldn't remember if it was North or South. Um, Cause I just knew. Ah. Uh, We'll just yeah, that's yeah. fine. Piece it together at the end. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so just travel is like you get in these grooves and you know, you get used to traveling over the place and, and so it's weird when you interact with people that don't travel a lot. Like I, I realized that I started to come across as kind of a jerk to people because I would forget that most people don't like get to go to Paris three times a year. And so I would like my stories would always start with like, oh, last time I was in Budapest oh, last time I was in Edinburgh, last time I was in Japan, and, like, I sounded kind of like a jerk, you know? Because mm -hmm. that's just, like, right? you're like, oh, yeah, cool, you get to fly planes a lot all the time, and I never get to leave this town. Like, thanks, you know? Uh, and so I had to sort of adjust, like, my stories and, like, you know, figure out how to do that because it's, like, you can come across as being, I don't know, mean or rubbing it in people's faces or whatever. Um, but, you know, I also, like, yeah, if they don't have the context, I guess. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And like I I uh I would love to have a dog, but I can't. Right. You know? And like I have a hard time. I don't I have friends all over the world, but I don't have that many friends in New York. Like I do. I went out with them last night, but like I don't get to see them very often. Like that was the first time I'd seen some of those people in like a month or two. Um, because it's it's just hard. So there's also while it is like a great privilege and benefit to have been able to travel over the world. It also means that there are a lot of things that I cannot do that, you know, a lot of people like if I was the kind of person that wanted kids, I wouldn't be able to do that and travel this way, you know. So like there's a lot of cons as well as a lot of pros. It can, right. it can sound like it's really cool to travel all the time constantly, but there's also a lot of downsides. So how many years have you been doing this kind of traveling? Uh, it's so like it's like three-ish. Three yeah, okay. three yeah. or maybe four. Because I, I did a lot of traveling around the states when I when I started uh, working there, and it was really really cool for the like the first six to nine months, but then it started wearing heavily. So I was just curious how long you've been doing that. But I guess yeah. your work is more interesting than, than what I did. I was yeah. traveling to sawmills and places like that. You get to see people at conferences, so that's different. Yeah, I mean, like it's cool. Like there's lots. Of, so another weird thing is like there's stuff I would like to see that's not programming conferences, but I can't always do it. So like. I went to India for two days, and by went to India, I mean I landed in an airport located within the country of India, and then got in a taxi to a hotel and stayed there for two days, and then immediately left. Right. So like, to really see India, no, not at all. Like I don't really know what it's like to be there. And but because I travel so much, the last thing I want to do when I have a vacation is to go get on another plane. So like, I would love to go back to Tokyo sometime, but I do not want to get on another like fifteen-hour flight. So. You know, it's also just weird in terms of what you get to see when you go to these places. So how does this traveling fit or how is this compatible with being employed? Um, cause yeah, <laughs> that's that's what I would like to know. 
So uh, part of it is that like, so when I worked at Jumpstart, it was literally part of my job description. Right. right? Like that was like marketing. And that so that sense, was important. Yeah. Um, after I left Jumpstart, um, I, I worked briefly for six months at this company called Balance Payments in San Francisco. They just recently shut down. It's kind of sad. Um, when I worked there, it was, it was expressly not part of my job, but that was also when I was like taking some time uh, off from traveling all the time. And I only ended up being there about six months, so it never really became a particularly hard conflict. It did to some degree, but it, you know, we were very upfront about like, you're hiring me because I speak at all these conferences, therefore I need to continue speaking at all these conferences, so you know, mm. this is gonna be a thing that I'm gonna do. Sometimes I'm just gonna leave for a week and like that's just what happens. Um, but also a lot of it is just because I still work when I'm traveling. So, you know, like I I don't I don't really like take time off basically ever. Uh, and so usually like I'm actually more productive when I'm at conferences than when I'm at home, which is very strange. Uh, but it's because I'm usually like working while the conference is actually going on. Um, okay. So like when you go, when you go to seven Ruby conferences in a row, some of the speakers are the same speakers. You've already heard that talk. And a lot of the speakers are people like, you know, you file a conference talk six months before the conference or whatever. So there's already stuff that's a little outdated. So you're like, oh, yeah, this is a talk about that project that Aaron was working on a year ago. I already know everything about this. I don't really need to pay that much attention to the talk itself. And so I like do work, you know, instead of listening to talks. For me, like conferences are much more about the social aspect of talking to people than they are about seeing the talks. And so I generally like work while the talks are going on and then attend all the social functions. Um, yeah, that so seems to tend to happen after. I've heard other other speakers say the same thing: is that they they don't really go for the talks anymore. It's just the people that they meet and the interactions they have. Yep. Yeah. Um, and I still think talks are valuable, especially if you're not doing that kind of like ridiculous travel circuit and you haven't seen all these things or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's just like I've sort of adapted to working while on the road. And, you know, I'm already asynchronous. Like I said, I live in New York, but my team is in San Francisco. So we're used to that being a thing anyway. So it doesn't really matter if I'm in some other place that's not New York. I'm just as remote as I always am, uh, as you know, as long as I get my work done. So. Okay. Yep. Makes sense. Yep. So where, where does uh, Mozilla come in? Yeah. So I left Balance because I couldn't do my job without living in San Francisco and I couldn't deal with San Francisco. I hated it with a fiery passion of a thousand suns. Um, <laughs> and so I love that job and I love those people, but I, I basically, it was just like, this is about me not letting to be here. So sorry. Why is that? Is it because of the startup culture or it's, it's a number of things. Uh, I like, so I was born on the East coast. So I, I like the East coast hustle and the California relaxing is just like not my style. Mm. Uh, secondly, I like to joke that, the rich people in New York are at least honest about being evil. Like, if you ask a banker whether or not he's saving the world with his work, he'll be like, shut up and choke you with $100 bills. Like, <laughs> they, don't, they don't care at all. Like, bankers are basically totally amoral. Whereas in San Francisco, all the VCs, the equivalent industry with the equivalent rich people, are like, we're saving the world and doing wonderful social good with this next app for people with $700 cell phones. And like, while San Francisco just completely falls apart uh, and, you know, the housing crisis is driving everyone who is not a programmer out of the city, um, homelessness runs rampant, um, all kinds of massive social inequality. Like, if that's the future that, that San Francisco is building, I don't want to be a part of it. Hmm. Um, I got sick of 
going to restaurants and overhearing people talking about SQL. Like, I just like to talk to non-programmers sometimes, you mm -hmm. know, and like have people around that aren't programmers and hopefully not, you know, uh, and some of this is also a little bit of like my own guilt, you know, like I, walking past 30 homeless people on the way to my six figure job tore at my soul very, very strongly. And like New York has its own problems and like, you know, don't get me wrong. It's not a Mecca of wonderful things. And like it has homelessness as, as an issue, but it's, it's like not the same there's, there's no, like, we're saving the world and we are the model place to live and, like, all that kind of utopian shenanigans that San Francisco likes to talk about itself. It's more um, honest. Yeah, like, I just, yeah, that's, that part just, just bugs me, basically. Mm. Um, so, so, yeah, so I moved to New York, and I love it here. Uh, very few people in my neighborhood are programmers. Uh, <laughs> and, like, you know, I can travel, I can go and do anything at any time of day, and stores are always open, I forget when I'm not in New York that, like, things close in other cities. <laughs> I'll try to, like, go buy stuff at, like, weird hours of the day and, like, stuff isn't open or whatever. I don't know. Um, I just love it here. Cool. Um, so, so, Mozilla, so I needed to leave San Francisco. I basically told Mozilla, I'm quitting my job and moving to New York. Would you like to hire me? And <laughs> uh, they, I was like, I want to work on Rust full time, like, more than anything. So just tell me if you can hire me to do that. If not, I'll look for other work. But if so, like, I won't look for other work. That's just what I want to do. But how, so, how, how, how does Rust come in, though? Well, so I've been contributing to Rust for about three years total, actually, um, in an open source capacity. Oh, okay. So I, I had heard about it, and I love programming languages and learning new ones. And uh, in college, a lot of the work that my friends did was operating systems research. And I, like, tagged along with that, and I liked low-level stuff. You know, I learned C when I was in seventh grade. Like, low-level programming has been something I've done for a long time. Mm -hmm. But as soon as I discovered Ruby, I was like, I don't have to think about that stupid stuff anymore. Wee! Um, <laughs> And so to me, like Rust was like returning to these roots that I had, you know, forgotten about. And I really, really liked it a lot as a language. And their documentation was terrible. And, you know, I'm an ex-wannabe English school dropout. So uh, I was like, I can write documentation. And so I've been contributing for about a year and a half in an open source way before this conversation even happens, basically. Um, okay. But I think Rust is a very important programming language for like computers and for humanity actually to be it to be totally grandiose about it <laughs> you sort of summarize in a nutshell what it is um for people yeah. that might not know so rust is a low-level programming language that is not actually scary so so <laughs> hist historically there's been a trade-off between power and safety so languages like c and c give you a large degree of power and control but what you pay for is that the computer can't double check that your stuff works at all so you like write some code and a compiler happily compiles it into whatever and then you accidentally like cause a crash and now your passwords are gone or stolen or like whatever. You know, bad bad things happen. Whereas in a language like Ruby, uh, the compiler, well not the compiler, but like the garbage collector, for example, will make sure that your memory is invalid at all times, um, but you pay a giant performance penalty for this. So you sort of get safe and slow or fast and dangerous. So what Rust is doing is we, make, we figured out a way to make it both fast and safe, which is like unique and novel amongst most programming languages. Uh, of course, there's always a trade-off, as we know with engineers. So you're like, you're selling me snake oil. What, what's the cost here? Like, it can't possibly just be all the good things. And basically, the downside is, is that you have to convince the compiler what you're doing is safe. And the compiler, is never, the compiler never forgets 
it always enforces the rules equally amongst everyone, regardless of you know what you know you're doing. And so like it's much harder to get a Rust program to compile in the first place. But once you do, you can have a very high degree of reliability of knowing that we'll do what you told it to do safely and correctly and quickly. Um, so that's sort of the trade-off is harder to program in language, but you get both safety and speed. So, so basically the promise is that it's a segmentation fault free. Yeah. Like uh, seg faults should not happen in Rust yeah. ever, basically. Yeah. Okay. Uh, dangling pointers should not happen ever. Uh, iterator invalidation shouldn't happen ever. Uh, data races due to sharing state across multiple threads shouldn't happen ever. Um, there's a lot of like really interesting safety guarantees that it provides. Uh, and it, it like compiles to like stupid fast. Like LVM is amazing and wonderful. So we get lots of like per high performance um, for, you know, and, and not have to worry about things not working. So did it, didn't it just hit 1.0? It did actually, yeah. May 15th. So just a little, a Very month ago. recently. Yeah. Where is sort of the ecosystem for all that as far as, for example, the web is concerned? Um, where, yeah. does, where does Rust fit into the web? Um, yeah, that, that's what I'm interested in, I guess. So one of the things that we did uh, relatively early on was make a package manager. So there's a sick program called Cargo, and it's sort of like Bundler or NPM or PIP uh, plus virtual env kind of if you're a Ruby, Python, JavaScripter. And so when I explain Cargo to those people, they're like, yeah, okay, cool, sure. But when you explain it to C and C++ people, they're like, wait a minute, I can just like add dependencies, instantly be added to my project with no problems whatsoever. Like, that's amazing. Um, and so because we had this relatively early on, we've developed a relatively healthy ecosystem, especially for such a young language, of people writing their own packages. Because when you make it easy for people to share their code, they just, nat excuse me, they just naturally share their code. Um, so... The, uh, the repository is called crates.io, and um, there are currently uh, about 2,400 crates that exist. Uh, admittedly, about only half of those compile right now um, because some of them are very old and they weren't updated for 1.0, and so like, you know, there's a bunch of dead weight on there. But like, we'll say, we'll say 1,000, 1,500 packages that work, um, and there's been almost 3 million downloads of those packages um, over the course of the time that we've had this infrastructure. So there's like a really healthy ecosystem for such a young language. Um, and that's also a really big difference to C or C++. I mean, as right. you said, that's um, something that was never there before. Right. Instead yeah. of I need to make my make file, now I'll deal with a git submodule for this project I depend on and figure out the linker flags and like deal with all that. You add one line to a manifest with the version you want and it just works. Right. Um, and that's... Some of our earliest production users have said that that is like a, just a, such a massive benefit for their productivity and their like ability to move forward, um, just because like there's so much stuff that's already out there and it's easy to use, so it's like not a big deal. Um, it is true that it is still a young language, so like you know if you think about the number like I've I've probably author, authored a thousand Ruby gems over the course of my time with Ruby like myself, right? Like so there are much more mature ecosystems have a significantly larger number of packages. But given our age, I think that we have a lot of stuff that's been built already, and it's only like increasing as time goes on. Yeah. Um, and so that's like really, really nice. Um, as far as the web goes, uh, crates.io is actually a Rust app. Um, it uses Ember on the front end and Rust producing JSON on the back end. Um, and it's not totally clear to me how popular Rust will be for your like application servers. I think Rust will be very popular for like your job queue, right? You really need that performance and you mm -hmm. want to have that stuff operate well. But 
just you can bang something out so quickly with Rails and with a language that makes you you know pay much more attention to the details like Rust. Um, I'm I'm not sure that people are going to want to make that trade off unless they've learned Rust for some other reason. Um, so like I, I come from Ruby world where no one uses Ruby except for to do Rails, which is kind of not true entirely, but it's sort of kind of true. And so like if I look at like Rust in a similar light, like I don't think that anyone is going to be itching to learn Rust because of its web frameworks. Um, yeah. I can I can see that. I mean I've been I've been very interested in in Rust itself as well as Go, but mm -hmm. I just can't at the moment justify the time to get into it because I don't have an application for it because right. we can do everything in the in the scripting languages. So yeah. Yeah. what I will say is that uh, the back end of crates.io is it does Git stuff and things. It's like non-trivial what it does. And it uses 35 megabytes of RAM at all times. <laughs> wow. Wow. Like, like that's just, you know, it's just good. And like it's basically running off of, you know, one or two Heroku servers and it just it's just solid. It it just doesn't ever crash or it uses such minimal resources. So it can it can handle a lot of load. Uh, and so that kind of thing is sometimes appealing to people, mm -hmm. uh, you know, based on what you're doing. Right. Uh, yeah. If you have higher, higher demands, I guess, or higher traffic sites that, that would make sense. I have, I've read quite a few blog posts of, of companies that were basically stuck with either rails or PHP and just couldn't make it scale. And then they rewrote it and went down to like one or two servers running go or, or rust. So, yep. Yeah. Um, so it's, so that's kind of cool. Um, there's actually a website called arewewebyet.com uh, that specifically tracks the uh, um, what say, maturity of the Rust ecosystem uh, for web stuff, and so it has links to a lot of um, it has a links to a lot of projects. Uh, there's it's not totally up to date. There's actually a bunch of pull requests on it that haven't been merged yet. So I'd say it's a little bit better um, than what it is. But like basically, sort of the current status is like. HTTP is good. Database drivers are good. Basic web frameworks are good. But like email, OAuth, uh, connecting to some random API that you want to use, like all of that stuff is, um, you know, like totally. Like I was thinking about writing a Twitter bot in Rust yesterday. And then I was like, I'm going to have to write OAuth from scratch. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just not doing that. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, so there's there is spottiness in the libraries for doing this stuff right now. Um, yeah. Speaking of uh, APIs, where does JSON API, the spec, come in? I think yeah. that is something that you either entirely started or co-authored with Yehuda Katz. Yeah. So what happened was at one of those conferences that I was traveling to all the time, um, I gave a presentation about hypermedia stuff um, because I am into that kind of thing. Uh, I, that's actually an interesting story. So I'll tell that briefly first. Um, so I like to try to think about if I hear somebody that's smart, say something that sounds stupid, I try to figure out why they would say such a thing. And so I heard a lot of people say rails doesn't do rest. And I was like, of course it does. We have restful routes. That's rest. Duh. And like, and so, but I was like, but these people are smart and they know what they're talking about. So maybe I should figure out like why they say this about rails. And, um, so I was like thinking about it. And so at some point I have these kind of list of things that I like occasionally look into because I need to learn more about this topic. And so one Saturday I was like, today I'm gonna learn why Rails is not restful. Like, let's do this. And so I was like, actually, who defines rest anyway? Like, where where does that come from? Like my definition of rest is basically based on Rails. So of course I would think Rails is restful because it's like a tautology. Um, and so that's when I found 
uh, Roy Fielding's thesis. And, um, you know, I read it and I was like, this has nothing to do with Rails at all. Those people are totally right. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and so, you know, you can get into all those details and that sort of boils down to this hypermedia idea, basically, is like the core of REST and why Rails is not REST and all that stuff. Um, so I was giving a talk about this at a conference and Yehuda came up to me and he was one of my like heroes of programming. Like I was like, Yehuda's amazing, does wonderful work. And like, I hope I can be a tenth of the developer of him someday. Um, and then he was like, I liked your talk, but I kind of think it maybe isn't true. Let's talk about this. And so we had like a four-hour argument uh, or something absurd, like a really long like discussion. People were like watching and stuff, and it was funny. And at the end, he was like, I think you might be kind of right, but I'm going to need to see some code. And I was like, yeah, Yehuda's stupid and terrible, and I'm an amazing developer, and like, you know, this is a great. Um, and so that, like I always try to remember that story because it reminds me that like even the people that you treat as idols – are just other programmers and they just happen to look into a thing more than you maybe. And like, they also have blind spots and weaknesses and they're human beings. They are not like Greek gods of programming. Um, and so I always try to remember that when I like talk to other people who like do open source stuff or whatever. And, you know, yeah, that's really good advice. Yeah. It's hard because we naturally, you know, and it's like nice to be like, you are a good programmer and I respect your work. It's like a very nice thing to say to someone, but there's like a danger when you get into this like cult of personality around people that is not healthy. Um, so anyway, uh, so that discussion happened because what Yehuda was trying to figure out at the time was how do I decouple Ember from Rails? Because if Ember was just a JavaScript framework for Rails apps, it would never go anywhere, right? It needs to be broader than the Ruby ecosystem to be uh, valuable and used by people. So, so what I sort of, in that conversation, what we sort of like got to at some point was I was like, if you want to decouple these things, you need to define the JSON layer because that's the, like the network layer is the spot where you can swap out components, right? Like if I write a website and it's written in Ruby or it's written in Python, you don't know because I just get HTML. And so it's the same way with this. If you define the JSON that Ember expects, then Rails can produce it or Python can produce it or anything can produce it. And that way you'll gain this sort of abstraction. Um, and so... Yehuda's like, I'm going to think about this. And then like uh, a couple weeks later, he published like a version one draft of the spec. So it kind of came out of our discussion. Um, I didn't help write the original ver version of the spec, um, but it was like, you know, it was, he was like, you and me, like he, the announcement was something like me and Steve have made this thing. And I was kind of like, okay, I guess we did, you know, like, <laughs> I didn't really write any of it. Um, nice. But what it was at first was just formalizing what Rails already produced by default. Like what does Rails generate? Who actually do for JSON? Let's like let's just define those in those semantics. And the problem is, is that you know those aren't particularly well. I'm not say particularly well thought out. What Rails does by default is totally fine. But like anything, there's edge cases, right? And so when you start digging into these edge cases, you find inconsistencies and stuff. And so over the last uh, two two and a half years, we've uh, we've worked on all those inconsistencies and edge cases, and now have something. That is like very consistent and very. I'm very happy with it. Um, and so it's sort of like this spec that um, lets you implement uh, on either side. I have a server that I want to produce an API with. I'm going to put out JSON API compatible JSON. And then I have some client code I want to use with any kind of server. I'm going to use JSON API JSON by default. Um, so that way you can uh, you gain this kind of abstraction. Um, and so it's broken out much broader than the the Ember and Rails universe. Uh, at Balanced, we use Python on the back end, and we are producing JSON API. 
uh, and it was wonderful. And you know, that's kind of like the thing. Um, I also like talked about JSON API as an anti-bike shedding weapon. So like the structure of your JSON matters, but not as much as we actually like to argue about it. Um, programmers love arguing about irrelevant things and uh, it matters, but not a ton. So we should all just like decide that we're gonna do this and just do it and actually work on building our applications instead of arguing about whether this should be an object or an array or whether it's got like integer keys or like what all that stuff is. Um, so that's kind of my like pitch for if you don't particularly care about Ember or Rails, it's just like, here's a baseline spec that will give you a decent API uh, and you just don't have to argue about the details. You can just do it. Um, how does this, how does uh, this sort of sort compare of to, to uh, HAL or any of the other, other Yeah. Specs? So every one of these specs has a thing that they're trying to accomplish. And so if you're also trying to accomplish what they're trying to accomplish, it's very useful. So for example, JSON APIs, sort of like pitch in this sense is I have objects on the server. I would like to transfer them to a client in an efficient way, including things like relations and relationships and linked information and stuff like that. Um, Hal's approach is I have an API. I would like to add a little bit of hypermedia, but what is the minimum possible hypermedia I can get away with? Uh, collection plus JSON's spec is like, a new version of Atom, or like, I have a list of things, I would like to be able to sort and select and filter those and query for new things about them and deal with lists of stuff. So each spec has its kind of strong point that it's attacking and it's focusing on that particular angle. Um, and so that's sort of how they compare is like based on what you're trying to accomplish specifically. Um, some of them are more broad than others. Okay. Yeah, because I, I mean, I really like the idea of, of having a spec. I mean, one of the most painful things is to try to integrate with third-party APIs because every yep. company has their own little way of doing something and you have to learn their specific, I guess, language uh -huh. in order to to make this all work and, and nobody's <laughs> doing the same thing. So what is your, have you guys tried to promote it, is, you know, try to get, broader adoption and, and how has that gone? Because um, I would really like to see something like that move yeah. forward in a big way. So um, we had, we've had various periods of, of uh, sort of marketing for this thing. But one of the things is that we didn't do a whole ton of it because we didn't want, we wanted to get 1.0 out the door. And so that it wouldn't be breaking. Like we've been changing the spec over these couple of years. And so we didn't just like, you know, anything else, you don't want a ton of people to use a pre-release thing because then they're going to just be upset when it changes, right? right? So, um, so we've done a little bit of that. And like I said, Balance, we used it and other companies sort of have used it. Um, but we haven't done a whole lot of marketing because uh, other than just like, so as it gets closer to 1.0, I done more and more like conference talks and blog posts and sort of said like, you know, if you want to get involved, we're making the final changes to like, you know, so you should check this out to double check that we're not doing something stupid. Um, and um, like now that 1.0 is over, we can actually start promoting it to people. So Ember 2.0 is coming out soon, question mark? Yeah, six uh, weeks or so. Yeah, six weeks-ish. And I was told at EmberConf uh, that it's actually going to be shipping JSON API support by default. So that's going to be the default kind of JSON that Ember is going to consume. And so I think that will drive adoption significantly. Yeah. Um, and I haven't kept up with how that work has actually gone because I was busy shipping Rust. Um, but 
supposedly that's happening. Um, and so that will be a big boon. The other thing that I've seen a big uptick in this is consulting companies. So they need to produce a lot of APIs on a regular basis. And so building shared tooling and not having to re-totally design an API every you know, two months or whatever often their contracts are has been very appealing to that crowd. And so that's something I never even thought of before um, as being like a, a, a thing, but people are into it. Um, yeah, that so makes that's sense. Nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. What else are you doing, or should we? Uh, no, no, hold on. I'm oh, sorry. We're still missing uh, something from the Mozilla story. So basically, you said uh, because that's where we jumped to Rust. So you said that we right. you you told Mozilla, "Hey, I would like to work for you. Are you going to hire me or something?" Yeah, yeah. So they said we're definitely interested, but we don't know how we're going to actually do it. Uh, let me figure it out. And so. Uh, basically, the deal is, as a research project, uh, Rust is already very well funded, I would like to say, um, but they don't have more funds than that. So, like, about six people are paid by Mozilla to work on Rust, and six people are paid to work on Servo, roughly. So that's, like, 12 people that you're paying full-time programmer salaries to work on a totally experimental language and browser engine, right? You're just, like, you're sort of throwing money away from a conventional sense, Right. So it's really hard to argue that you should add even more people onto that team. Um, and so, uh, but they really needed documentation and the, and the Rust team knew that that was an important thing and that, you know, they'd wanted me to do it. And so they basically managed to find some consulting money. So I, st I originally joined as a contractor um, for like a six-month contract. Mm -hmm. And then that ran out. I wasn't legally allowed to do it again because California law says that you can't have only one client for more than six months at a time without needing to switch or something. And the problem was is that Mozilla Research had not gotten an increased budget, so they still didn't have any hires to hire me. And so I'm still not entirely sure how I am employed at Mozilla, but I am a seasonal employee, which I like to joke means after Christmas I get let go. Uh, <laughs> Working retail, like once once Santa's once Santa's elves are no longer needed, like they're out on the street or whatever. Um, and so uh, this has been okay with me because I Mozilla's the largest company I've ever worked for, and I don't really like big companies. And so um, I want to start my own company doing Rust consulting and training work. Um, but 1.0 needs to ship before that's a viable business. So it's sort of the relationship between me and Mozilla has always kind of been like. This is a bridge for you to be able to do your work until you're able to do it outside of Mozilla, and then you know you'll go do that. So mm -hmm. they've been very supportive of that idea um, the entire time, and like that's also part of why I'm able to do this is because like it's not like let's cobble together some money to hire this person, and their heart's going to be crushed, and we can't hire them again next year, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's also part of sort of how this is working out. So as the more people use Rust the more potential customers I have. And so at some point that will be a number in which I could actually make my living doing that work. And so then I will like switch into that basically is my plan going forward. So you said there were six people on the Rust team. What was the other six? Uh, Servo. Servo, so okay. The reason that Mozilla cares about Rust is that C++ is terrifying and dangerous. And Mozilla, Firefox is like four million lines of C++. And the only thing more oh. terrible than C++ is 4 million lines of C++, right? <laughs> we did a little like internal survey thing, uh, very scientific, of course, thing. And uh, about half of Firefox's critical security bugs would be compile time errors in Rust. Um, and and like, that's why Mozilla is investing in Rust, is the idea is that you know, web browsers need to be both fast and safe. 
because they're running arbitrary code on your machine. Um, and that, you know, people love to use fancy CSS transitions and whatever, so it needs to be fast too. Um, and so the only language that fits that bill today, well, not now that West is 1.0, but historically speaking, the only language that fit that bill is C++. But then, you know, as, as good as you are with C++, um, inevitably you will shoot yourself in the foot. That's just part of the nature of the thing. Um, and so, so Mozilla invested in building Rust, but also in investing a new browser engine. So Servo is the name of the project. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a web rendering engine, kind of like Gecko. So it's not a full-fledged browser. It's just the rendering components. Um, but it has been developed alongside Rust, and that's good for two reasons. First of all, because that's what Mozilla actually cares about in a certain sense. Um, you know, Rust is just a way of building Servo. But mm -hmm. also because if you write a, if you, if the only big program, if the only big program in your programming language is the compiler, you may accidentally make a language that's great for making compilers and not for writing other stuff. So Servo has been very instrumental in making sure that Rust is a practical language because we'll like implement a new feature, Servo will try it out and say, this is terrible or this is awesome. And then we pitch the feature or we keep it. And that sort of like uh, cycle of feedback has been very, very useful um, to make sure that Rust is a usable language that's actually good and practical at the goal that it's trying to accomplish. Um, and so it's true that benchmarks aren't really benchmarks until you've finished the entire thing. So like Servo is currently like way faster than basically every other rendering engine out there, but it still only implements about like 60 or 80% of the web platform. So maybe that last 20% will cause it to slow down significantly, but we're feeling pretty good about it. Um, and so that's sort of the idea uh, is that, you know, eventually, so there's also Firefox nightly has gained support for rust now. Uh, and, there's actually a patch that has not yet been merged, but it's in the queue to replace the URL parsing infrastructure with Rust code. So Firefox will hopefully have Rust in it um, by the end of the year, uh, and we'll be slowly replacing chunks of Firefox with Rust. Servo will probably become a separate product if it ever becomes a product. That's the goal is to productize it, but they're not there yet. Wow, cool. Very exciting. Cool. <clears throat> yep. Yeah, it's really, really neat. The Servo stuff is just, it's just so cool. Like, like they have demos where you can like turn on uh, which thread rendered which part of the page, and your page gets all these colored boxes that shows you like how the algorithm actually like painted the page. There's like all this stuff like that. It's like really really neat. Um, there's a project called Servo Shell that's using um, this this project called uh, Browser.js, and it's like the browser Chrome implemented with HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. So you can get a servo with the browser Chrome, where a servo is also powering the Chrome, not just the browser. Uh, it's kind of really cool. That's nice. Uh, and so that would be really powerful. Like, imagine being able to edit, you know, how your uh, browser uses tabs by just knowing some CSS and JavaScript, right? No, that, like that no, that's cool. theming. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But I just like down to the low, you know, lowest level. Yeah. Basically. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's all super neat. Okay, and are you now currently, um, when you go on conferences, are you talking about Rust? Yeah, so it depends. Uh, like, basically, my talks right now are usually split between pure Rust talks, uh, why Rubyists should use Rust, hey. and uh, JSON API are basically like the right. three talks that I'm currently giving at the moment. Right. Um, and that's also another interesting point about Rust, too, is like, um, so Node.js is, is a thing. Uh, 
And the reason that it's so powerful, this is like a Yehuda thing. Like this is not my own invention. I should just mention that. But I really love it, so I steal it all the time. Okay. Um, the reason that Node.js is powerful is that it enabled a new group of people who were not able to do something before and gave them the ability to do that thing. So this group of people were like front-end web people. Um, they had maybe written some JavaScript, like some jQuery to like make something happen on a web page, but they'd never written server-side code before. And now with Node.js, they could take that knowledge they had about building client-side stuff and now build servers. And that's why you've seen Node explode in popularity is because it's just an entire generation of people that weren't able to do a thing are now able to do a thing. And so in the Ruby world, we talk about dropping down into C when Ruby is slow because Ruby is super slow. Um, you know, we don't use Ruby because it has performance. Uh, you know, we use it because we love it. Um, but we say we'll just drop down into C and rewrite that algorithm in C whenever we need speed. But then C is terrifying, so we never actually do it. Mm -hmm. um, and some small people do it. And so I see Rust as being the future of like bringing a new generation of people who never thought they could do low-level programming and teaching them to do low-level programming. Um, because like, when you have that compiler to help protect you against those terrifying, scary bits, it's a much more conducive environment for you to learn that kind of thing. Like, you can know as a Rubyist that you're not going to cause a seg fault, and that's like really powerful. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that what um, I think Yehuda Katz is doing in his company and with his product Skylight? They, Skylight yes. Yeah. They tried to do something in Ruby, and then they rewrote re it in Rust. Yep, that's exactly what yeah. happens. Uh, yeah. It's a performance monitoring tool. So when you're doing performance monitoring in a GC language, you always have to be very careful that the GC does not affect your timings, right? If you get a GC pause in the middle of your timing, is that the server had a spike or is that your timing code was bad? And there were like memory leaks and you know uses a bunch of RAM and stuff like that. And so they rewrote it in Rust. The Ruby gem that you install for Skylight is written in Rust, and it's been wonderful for them. Um, and that's why Yehuda's gotten so involved is because like it was really they had a C++ prototype and they weren't comfortable shipping it because they're like, I am not convinced I'm not going to seg fault someone's Rails app. Yeah, <laughs> it's terrifying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, so that's like that's what I see is also the power of Rust is like bringing this low-level stuff to people who thought maybe they couldn't do it. Because, like, so again, to, to, to talk about my friends in college that did low-level things, when I said I was doing web stuff, they're like, web programming is difficult. You're embedding a scripting language and a markup language and a styling language and then sending them over the network to another computer that runs a totally different operating system and you expect that to work? Like, assembly code is simple. It does what it says on the tin. Like, very easy <laughs> instructions, you know? So, so some people are like, like, we're all different, and we all do different things with different strengths and weaknesses. And so I think there's a lot of programmers out there who would be great at low-level programming, but because people say that it's hard, they don't think they can do it. Mm. Like, people would never tell you to start learning programming with C, right? Like, that's not a thing most people do. Yeah. Um, and so the low-level stuff has gotten this kind of rep as being scary and bad, and it's difficult, and only super elite, mega-good programmers are able to do it. And I think that that's wrong because there are tons of people that would prefer to be writing assembly code than Ruby code, but they maybe just have never tried assembly before. Um, and so not that you write assembly in Rust, but just that sort of analogy of like, you too can do low-level programming. It's not that scary. The water's fine. Come join us. It's like a, a thing that I think is really important for Rust in the future and something I like to talk about about Rust. That, yeah, that's, yeah. A powerful, that's a powerful thought, thought I, think. I think. Because, uh, yeah, because, uh, I haven't yeah, thought, thought of that. Thought of and, that. Um, and, um, I think that's uh, exactly right, that there might be a lot of people that actually can do that really well, but they're 
it's just scary. Nobody goes into that. Like everybody learns JavaScript or Ruby first. And yeah. yeah. I, I always think back to that moment I talked about with the startup, right? Where I was like, I feel stupid because I never realized I could do a startup because I live on the wrong side of the country. Mm -hmm. And so like power was always there. I could have made my plan to do startups instead of going to college if I had just like realized that the possibility was actually a possibility. Exactly. And I think that's something we do to ourselves a lot is that we don't, we don't realize what we're able to do because we're too scared to do it or we've been conditioned that we couldn't do it or it just never occurred to us to do it. And so, you know, like low-level stuff is a thing you can do. It's not bad. Hmm. Yeah. Sounds very interesting. I mean, I, I have a little bit of a C++ background and uh, I am uh, very, very interested in looking into Rust. So curious to see if I get around to it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've I've heard so one of our early production users actually says that their Ruby Python people get into it quick more quickly than the C++ people do because the C++ people have to unlearn fear like we <laughs> do air quotes yeah. there's, there's air quotes around that but it's like you know the Ruby Python people are just like I'll just dive in and do this and that's cool and the C++ people are like wait but what is this actually doing what does the semantic actually do how is this working like what assembly does this generate because the only way you can survive in that environment is to know literally every last detail about what you're doing. Yeah, and that so makes perfect sense. Yeah, so it takes I'm a longer screwed. time. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's just like it takes a longer time to ramp up because you have to unlearn these, these habits that have served you well in other languages. Yeah. And so the people that are new don't have those habits yet. So they tend to get going more quickly. Now, as far as whether or not how thoroughly they understand it after they get going so quickly, that's a different story maybe. Um, and like one of the things they've mentioned too is that they're much more confident with code reviews because they know that if it compiles, it works so well. So they're like able to code review new people's code and trust much more quickly that it's like good code because it has to be because it compiles so it works like, right. to a certain degree. Yeah. And also has uh, I read something uh, briefly that also has uh, like uh, simple unit testing built in. Is that correct? Yes. Uh huh. It's part of the language. Yes. Okay, that's you, cool. You can annotate certain functions with tests, and then basically, if they panic, the test fails, and if they don't panic, the test passes. Um, it's like very, very simple. So there's like assert, which you know panics if uh, it's false, and like you just sort of build up from there. Um, and it's part of the language, and it's it's like part of the culture. You know, the compiler has tons of tests. Um, yeah, it's cool. That's cool. Yeah, sure. All right. Um, what do you think? Should we wrap it up and move to the, to the picks? Yeah, I think so. All right. How about uh, you start, Khalil? Oh, uh, okay. Um, so let's see. What was my first pick? Um, oh yeah. So I I actually um, yeah I wrote this down down a while ago. So I watched this video by Jake Archibald. He uh, did a video about you know, how to make a website really performant with, uh, with the help of service workers, which is currently possible in, in Chrome, I think, or in, uh, in nightly builds or something, I don't know, but definitely in, uh, on mobile Chrome browsers. And it was just really, really well done and nice and, and really um, explained really well. He did, he built this little app that kind of pulls um, Wikipedia articles down and then displays them really nice and um yeah so he basically he, and he brought that app for he brought that app from being really slow to being really fast with uh, service workers so that was that's really cool that's my first pick 
Uh, are you going to go through all of them, or are we going in, in the round in a circle? Uh, so we always used to go back and forth, so I, okay. I would say let's just go in the round. All right, so I'll do my first one is uh, JSON server. That's something I came across a few days ago. We're actually going to refactor or um, partially rewrite, or how do you say, progressively rewrite one of our main apps. And uh, we might be doing that in Ember. And uh, one mm -hmm. thing that we need is a quick way to prototype the back end or the, the API server, I guess. And um, JSON server seems to be something that is quite usable. I haven't actually used it, but it uh, looks really cool. Um, basically, you can define um, your JSON objects in a configuration file. And um, if you hit a specific endpoint, it'll serve up um, that particular object that you're requesting. And you can even modify it, which will then be saved into that document so you can interact with it. Uh, looks pretty cool. And my first pick is going to be the Netrunner card game. So uh, there's this, this card game called Netrunner. It's made by a board gaming company called Fantasy Flight Games. So the history is, uh, if you've heard of Magic the Gathering, it's like the most popular card game that exists. Uh, after Magic, the guy who made it made this new card game called Netrunner. And then all the card games basically died in the late 90s. Uh, Fantasy Flight, the board game company, bought the rights to it, reworked it, so it's much more like a board game. You buy a basic set, you play with it while, you buy an expansion. Um, there's none of the like randomness that makes Magic very expensive to play. And the theme of the game is basically cyberpunk. So you're either a hacker uh, or an evil corporation. And the rules are asymmetric, so you have to learn how to play both sides. Um, and basically the corporation has cards that are worth points in their deck. So you as the hacker need to attack their deck or their hand or the cards they've played, which are sometimes face down, to try to figure out where the agendas are. Uh, and so it's like a really, really well done themed game. Um, it's, it's just like a super blast and I have a ton of, ton of fun playing it. Awesome. Awesome. So my second pick is uh, basically is another video. Uh, Google I.O. happened a few weeks ago, I think. And um, so, and what I thought was really interesting was they were showing off the, the, the new poly Polymer version, version 1.0. So um, they totally, so basically what Polymer is, it's, it's like a polyfill for web components, which is a web standard. And um, they, they used to have um, a different implementation. They, they, they wrote it completely from scratch. And they did that because it was not very performant uh, in the beginning because they, they really tried to kind of uh, polyfill the whole shadow um, DOM spec that was in that web component spec, which just made it a really slow on browsers that don't actually implement that spec yet. So they, they made a really lightweight, uh, fast version of it and um, basically said that you can use like this is really the production ready. You can go ahead and use it in, in production apps um, and it works in all browsers or in the, in the modern ones. And that's, that's pretty exciting. Um, it gives, gives a little bit uh, of hope that it may, maybe we're moving forward in that, in that area as well, a little bit. So that's my second pick. All right. Um, my next pick is the uh, Mystery Show. It's the new podcast uh, from Gimbal. Gimlet Media. I heard the first episode and I didn't really like it. I thought, eh, that's probably not good. I'm probably not going to listen to it. But then they played the second episode on, uh, on I think, the Startup Podcast. 
And um, that was really, really cool. Um, basically, it's this um, um, host that uh, her name is Starly Keen, and she, she solves everyday, everyday mysteries. And um, it's, it's quite surprising. So you, you just have to take a listen and see if you like it. It's pretty cool. Yeah, she finds people. I also started listening to it. She she finds people that um, have some sort of a mystery somewhere. Uh, yeah, so like, everyday that's people. Not it's not like everyday um, people. Yeah, yeah and that and it's it just it, it, the only requirement is that it's not solvable by googling, right? It, yeah, exactly. And that's right. kind of it. And then and it's supposed to be interesting. And then she yeah. goes off and is doing her detective work and documents it. So that's really and cool. I thought really the fun. the second episode the reason I guess the reason I liked is so she was trying to to find out why Britney Spears was holding a copy of this author's book. And this author wrote a successful first book and her second book totally tanked. But then she saw that uh, Britney Spears was holding this in one of the paparazzi um, um, photographs. And, you know, she started trying to figure out how, how she would do this. And the part I liked so much is, is that she basically started interviewing everyone along the way. So how she ended up doing it is she she bought these um, backstage passes or meet and greet passes to meet Britney Spears in, uh, in, in Las Vegas. And the best part of the whole show to me was where she interviewed or she just started talking to the Ticketmaster guy and almost made him cry. Um, telling him, you know, that he's he's worthy and and the things that he's doing are, are really great, and just sort of gave him a pep talk, and he he starts almost bawling and saying, "You're the nicest person I've ever talked to." <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was really cool. So if the if the next shows are kind of like that, um, should be really good. Cool. My second pick is going to be a video, actually. Uh, we talked about how I don't watch conference talks, but one of the reasons why I don't is because I can watch them later uh, since they're recorded. So I actually end up watching some talks. Uh, and this is one of my favorite ones that I've seen recently. It's from Tropical Ruby 2015, which happened in uh, April uh, this year by Avdi Grimm. It was the keynote. Uh, and the title is called The Soul of Software. And this is a kind of talk that I have given similar talks to. It's, it's very philosophical in nature, and it's talking about uh, specifically Ruby's position amongst like, these different theories of software and how software works. Um, but he cites a large number of like, very interesting thinkers and talks about like, ways of thinking and uh, like, the way that Ruby is a fundamentally different kind of programming than other programming languages uh, and compares and contrasts like formal models for reasoning versus intuitive models for reasoning and like all this kind of stuff. And it's just, it's a wonderful talk. I will not do it justice. Uh, you should just watch it. So yeah, Soul of Software by Avdi Grimm. Cool. Um, my last pick is, is um, like a static. It's, it's okay. So it's like a static site generator somehow, but it's also less than that. Actually, it's called uh, Jenny and it's something that, um, comes from the Angular uh, team, uh, specifically a guy that's, that's working in, in the UK um, for the Angular team. And he uh, made this thing that's like a, like a software that you can use to create like a pipeline of processors that, that, that kind of take in your code and look at the com and, it, and it looks at your comments and your JS doc comments and stuff like that, and it creates whatever you want out of it. You can you can spit out um, 
just HTML pages or HTML snippets or Markdown or whatever. And I've been looking into this because we will need it at work or something like that in order to create like a pattern library and uh, doc documentation in one and stuff like that. And uh, that looks uh, pretty, pretty cool, pretty, pretty interesting. So, so I'm going to pick that as my third pick. My third pick, or my, yeah, my third pick is um, actually a book, and uh, it's called Shohin Bonsai by Martin Albeck. Um, mostly I bought that um, because of the pictures that uh, this guy took. He's a, he's a great photographer on top of being a very uh, capable bonsai artist. And um, uh, Shohin Bonsai, those are basically the trees that are about uh, up to 25 centimeters or 10 inches tall. That's sort of what I kind of specialized in when I was still doing bonsai. Um, unfortunately, I had to leave all my trees in Florida because they were mostly tropicals. But um, it's a really, really nice book to look at. And um, there's also a gallery of his work, um, which I'll put a link in the show notes. They're just magnificent, tiny little trees that don't look tiny. <laughs> uh sort of related to trees kind of in a way. My third pick is going to be a book, actually. Um, this book is called House of Leaves. And the way that I like to describe this book is you read it, and if you love it, you are destined to become an English major. And if you hate it or think that it doesn't make any sense, you probably want to do like literally anything else with your life. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a novel. Uh, it's a fiction novel. And it's... Uh, I, I never know how to like talk about it without giving away too much about the novel, but I guess I'll say that uh, there is a narrator, and the narrator finds a story written by this guy about another thing. So there's like three levels of narration going on, and the story like crisscrosses across those three levels of like the person telling the story of the person telling the story, uh, and it's it's like a horror book about this house that. Uh, is a quarter of an inch bigger on the inside than it is on the outside, which is very curious. And like over time, more weird things happen with this house, and there's sort of all of this uh, shenanigans. It's like it cites books that are real and then cites books that are fake. So you like go to look up a quotation, and and you know it'll be like, oh, this isn't Don Quixote on page 275, but there's only 200 pages of Don Quixote, or like. <laughs> You know, then there was one that'll be real, or it's like an entirely fictional work. Um, there's actually a forum that was dedicated just to trying to figure out all the levels of like allegory and references and like weird stuff that's going on in this book, where people have discussed it for years. So um, yeah, it's one of my favorite novels, uh, and it's sort of like a, it's like a cliche thing that you read when you're starting to go to take English classes, um, and I've always really liked it. So yeah, House of Leaves. Wow. Sounds like Inception. <laughs> yeah, kind of, in a certain sense. Uh, but that's like part of it anyway. Yeah. yeah. Cool. All right, so music pick round. Um, my my pick is a track called On the Bible by um, by Tech 9 who's a rapper. And uh, he's featuring T.I. and Zeus. Have you ever seen a Mackey living? New Tech 9 with the extension HK, HK 47 Made it bend down, call me raven I put that on the Bible, boy, count your blessings Put that on the Bible, boy, count your blessings 
they tone, said I'm coming to get you. Well, that's when all of the heavy artillery come in the picture. And luckily, cause of your past, you can have someone assist you. I was raised a cool brother, but these motherfuckers went and summoned a nigga. I swore to never let a man's hand take me to my grave, nigga. With my fortune, I'ma get the torture like Oregon, I spray, nigga. I know they dying to get up with the nine, that's fine. They wanna make a nigga do the whoop. So I'ma take the carbine and put it to your mind. It's going through you, not a ring like a hula hoop. Put that on the Bible, so if you fucking with tech, get the rifles. Totally tripping, trying to take my title. Lift you right up in the sky with the you can do this if he chooses to be foolish. The gun never loses, never give you the deuces, nigga. This is who is. Let me calm my nerves. I'ma simply put this on the word. If you're hella aggravated because of a song you heard from the Nina, I smoke a nigga like my ganja herb. I'm on the verge, no life beyond the surge. When I bomb, you served. What does one deserve but a head stumping and put your teeth on the curb, nigga? And I like this track. Uh, my my brother sent me this video of that track and the video is like super i think it's really well made and it's just very gritty and kind of really kind of dark and somehow somehow i really enjoyed that also because the the chorus the chorus is sung by uh, by a jamaican guy and 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 i kind of i i always tend to like that so that's uh on the bible yeah all right, my music pick is um, probably something people are completely sick of hearing. Um, it's uh, Happy by Pharrell Williams. It might seem crazy what I'm about to say. that is because it does just that. I watched um, Despicable Me the other day with my kids and it's just a really nice tune, especially in that movie context. It's fun and I, cool. I started googling a little bit and found um, the music video itself is, is cool too, or, or one of the versions I guess is, is first him and then it leads on to all these people dancing in the street to his song. And uh, one thing I came across um, recently was uh, this YouTube video of this kid dancing at a basketball game to uh, in the bleachers to this song that was playing in a break or something, and it's it's hilarious. It just makes you feel happy. So there you go. Cool. My my musical pick is going to be uh, an old thing, not a new thing, uh, but it's my one of my favorite albums ever. It's uh, Against Me is reinventing Axl Rose. The the band is Against Me. It's also in the title of the album. Um, but this whole album is wonderful. If I had to pick one particular song, it would be the song Baby, I'm an Anarchist. Through the best of times, through the worst of times, through mixing out the bush. Two hundred and thirty-six, we went our separate ways. You fought for Stalin, I fought for freedom. We live in a glory, I believe in myself. I'm a mom, of cocktail, of Dante. Our baby, what's that? Confused look in your eyes, what I'm trying to say is back. I'll burn down buildings while you sit on a shot inside. 
But as far as I'm concerned, this is like one of the best punk albums that was ever made ever. Um, it's kind of like a folk punk to a little bit of a degree. So, you know, there's like any music, there's tons of individual genres. So I'm not saying this is the best hardcore punk album or the best like classic punk album, but I think it's definitely one of the best punk albums um, ever made. And it is very near and dear to me and just wonderful in basically every respect. So I'm, I'm real into it. Awesome. awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and, and spending a considerable amount of time um, telling us about your story. Where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you or see what you're doing? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, the biggest things are uh, Twitter. So I, I use my real name as my handle everywhere. So if you, if you just look for my name on basically any service, you'll find it. The things I use most often are Twitter. Um, and uh, email is a thing that I try to keep up with, but sort of drown in. So you can like email me with things if you have thoughts or questions. But also uh, GitHub is pretty much where I do almost all of my stuff. So um, those those three things are where you can mostly find out what I'm uh, what I'm up to. Great. So, but um, uh, but, but but Twitter is not a good way to contact you anymore, as far as I could. So it by the time this hits air, it will be. Oh, okay. Uh, I. <laughs> I uh, I have a news story being written about me by a right-wing UK newspaper that Gamergate reads. And oh. so I was battening down the hatches to prepare for their bullshit, basically. And so that article ended up coming out last night at like 3 a.m. and no one cared. So I will be like unlocking my Twitter and making it more reasonable uh, in the near future. But I was pretty much like trying to dodge as much of that bullet as possible. Was that the original reason for you basically putting the snow background and having the gone away um, status it's, code? It's like related. Uh, uh -huh. I was working like 120 hour weeks up until the rest like launch because you only get one 1.0, right? I wrote 1700 lines of documentation in the four days before release. Um, <laughs> Luckily for the launch itself, the actual code would have been good for like a month. So the train model means that there's like a six week gap, you know, before the release happened. Mm. So everyone that's actually like working on the compiler had been like not in crunch mode for a long time because their crunch mode was like a month before the actual release, right? And so we were very confident that the, like me being in crunch mode does not mean that all of Rust was like, let's slap it all together right before the deadline. <laughs> but, uh, but documentation can be added, right? Because like that's different. So my crunch mode was like different than everybody else's crunch mode. And so I had just been so completely exhausted and overwhelmed from having to do that. Uh, and uh, that I, I just couldn't deal with like Twitter stuff. Like some people said some things that were not even particularly very mean, but because I was so emotionally fragile, I just couldn't deal with it. So I took some time off to like do that thing. And I've been feeling much better um, having taken some time away from Twitter. And then just as I was getting back on, this like shenanigans with the Gamergate stuff happened. And so I've been like private for a while, but I'm going to turn that off in a day or two and it'll be like back to normal. Oh no. No. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> okay. Just, just do it again. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so Twitter, Twitter will be back in full swing for relatively soon. Uh, I just want to make sure that it's give it a couple days so that everyone completely forgets about that story and then it'll be fine. Awesome. Okay. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on. Um, my name is Henning Glattergutz and you can find me at hglattergutz on Twitter. 
And I just want to thank everybody for listening. You can find all the show notes for this episode on descriptive.audio. If you have any feedback or guest requests, hit up hit us up on Twitter um, at descriptivepod or join us on in our Slack chat. You can find the link uh, for that on the website as well. Steve, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. That was awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.